Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Okay, who can name that tune in 12 notes? I can because I've been listening to that album <laughs> for the past four days. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of easy once you've been listening to it. So I have to say something right off the bat. We initially wanted to talk about the Yes album today. But I think we need to enlarge our scope. I think we need to cover, and I'll explain why in a minute, we need to cover from the Yes album through, like, Yes songs. That's the material that was on the Yes album, Relayer, and Close to the Edge. Because when you look at the band's career... That's all they did. <laughs> yeah. There, there's hardly anything after that that was important. You know, there's a lot of bands that will, uh, particularly bands from the 70s, that they grow up and they start playing stuff and it's, they end up being like a tribute band to themselves. And we've said this about, I've said this about the Rolling Stones, and I think they're great, but they've got a bigger scope. They're, what, 69, 76, most of the songs they they play now? I know what you mean, and I know we're supposed to be talking about Yes, but we'll get as far as the Rolling Stones go, they're a band that, for a long time, did interpretations of their own songs, and then went back and said, you know what the people want to hear? The people want to hear the original versions. So the Rolling Stones went a little longer than what Yes did, but you're right. Yes created a template in a farmhouse in 1970 and has been playing those same five <laughs> songs for the past 60 years. There's more than five. There's the four from the Yes album. There's two or three from Close to the Edge, depending. There's one or two from Relayer, Roundabout, which was probably their most popular song. Anything on Yes songs, I think, is is in the canon. <laughs> Anything not on Yes songs well, is not in the canon. except for Aventure, which that middle oh, song... Oh, that's actually on, a pretty good song. Yeah, but that middle song on the second side, was it, three and a half minutes, it's a song that belongs on the previous two albums, right, with their earlier style. May I also say at the beginning here that I am not at all familiar with their earlier stuff. I do know it was kind of hippy-dippy, psychedelic. They did covers. They were very good arrangers. They're, they did a wonderful recording of Paul Simon's America. Oh, absolutely. That's a great song. I've heard that many times. Um, yeah. I didn't know it was before Yeah. the uh, Yes album, because it sounds yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. But So here's why I came to this conclusion, because in my research— I was listening not just to the Yes album, which I literally know by heart. I've listened to it so many times. But I also went to look at some of the videos that they've made. Now, Yes is one of these interesting prog rock bands that split up into all sorts of different versions and created different short-lived groupings of artists. And then they finally got back together, and I think it was around 2000, late 90s, they got back together and there was a period where all five of the original, well, not the original members, because the original drummer was Bill Bruford and um, Alan White came in in 72 to replace him. But those five members, Chris Squire, Steve Howe, Rick Wakeman, John Anderson, Alan White, they all got together again. And then in 2001, they did this tour called Symphonic Live. Now, I looked into this for two reasons. One, I came across two videos from it on Apple Music, and I'll link to them. One of them is And You and I, and the other is Roundabout. It's interesting to watch them in that order because And You and I was sometime in the middle of the show and Roundabout was the encore, right? And And You and I, it sounded 
with the addition of the strings and the horns and all that, it sounded exactly like it did on the record. I mean, exactly. And the audience was just sitting there. No movement. They were bored. And then Roundabout comes on, and that's the encore. And everyone's getting up and dancing. I'll be the Roundabout, clapping their hands. All the girls from the string section come out and do a line behind the musicians on stage and do their best sort of office Christmas party dance moves. It really looks lame. It's, it's really sad. Oh, my. But it's the exact same sound from 1971, 72, 73. There's like... They changed over the years, and then they came back. Like you say, the Rolling Stones, people wanted the originals, and yes, they, they went back to the originals. So you got that core period with technically three albums, but they did do one side of Tales from Topographic Oceans in this thing. And apparently they've been doing the that one ritual, the last the side four. They've been doing that a lot in live shows over the years. I suspect that also the versions that feature Trevor Rabin and... Uh, those people, they also do probably the more modern stuff, like Owner of a Lonely Heart and that sort of thing. They don't do the the canon stuff. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So there's two yeses now. And I think at one point, yeah. it got so confusing looking at the lineup of the band. And at one point, there was a version of the band that had no original members in it. Yeah, certainly possible. So did you know the, the ship of Theseus? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's a, a thought experiment or whatever. There's a ship from Theseus, and if you take one plank off and replace it with a new one, is it still the same ship? And if you take another plank off and the mast, is it still the same ship? When you've taken all the planks and masts and replaced everything, is it still the same band? I think people just want to hear the songs. And quite frankly, even if it was a, if it was a bunch of unknowns playing a good version of, well, in this case, they'd have to do a really good version of Yours is No Disgrace, but... Is it the same thing? I don't know. I mean, what you were at the con- you see the video where the people are bored at one instance, but as soon as the dance song comes on, they start dancing. So, it's, is it the band or is it the song or is it the audience? Yeah, the audience it, or, the, or the, the time or any, who knows the atmospheric pressure, the, the popcorn know, at the civic whether center, whether the LSD kicked in yet or not. Right? You know, <laughs> was it raining? So what I find interesting is really paying attention in a different way, you know, because we're doing this as professionals here. We're not just doing it as like average people who listen to music. I've kind of concluded that, yes, in this core period was a power trio with the addition of keyboards. Because, you know, I I just want to interrupt you just for a second. And I thought the very same thing. I didn't think power trio, but I said, man, those three guys, they're doing a lot of heavy lifting. The organ is just kind of. Well, especially Tony Banks, he's not exactly, uh, you know, he's not exactly Rick, Rick Wakeman. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I think you're absolutely right about on that on that point. Chris Squire's got this funky bass, and and we were talking about this last week, and I didn't realize it's a Rickenbacker, and it sounds like this huge rubber band, and it's got these these kind of weird vibrations that 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 make that make concert halls rumble. I, I saw Yes twice in 1978. It's the only time I saw them. It was the closest I was to the stage of any major concert, like in Madison Square Garden. Initially, I had tickets in the center of the orchestra, but then after they sold tickets, they announced they were doing an in-the-round thing. So they had this circular stage in the middle that was slowly turning around. And I had to go in and exchange my tickets, and I had third row and fifth row seats for two of the shows, instead of like 30th row. And that was a really good chance to see a band that close. It's the only time I've been able to do that for that type of show. And... When you see them, they they were like, they were, this was a rock band. If not for John Anderson's, you know, 
high-pitched voice and weird lyrics and fluffy clothes, it would have been a rock band. I just want to mention something about the Rickenbacker um, that Chris Squire plays. He gets a lot of different sounds out of it. Uh, One of the famous sounds is that jangly, roundy sound that he gets. I'm not sure how he does it. Either he's splitting the pickups to different places to change uh, change the tone of each one, or adding distortion effects. He certainly plays it through a Leslie a few times, a Leslie speaker system. He plays it with different effects. He plays not only bass lines, like boom, 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 but he also plays lead lines. He plays counter melodies. He plays continuos. He's doing a lot of lifting, and he's really, I think, at the center of the band. Yeah, he is. Well, him and Steve Howe, they, they work together really well, and there are a few rock guitarists as good as Steve Howe. He's got these chops and even, so this Symphonic Live was 2001, it's 20 years ago, and they're a lot older now, but man, they were just cooking. And Steve Howe, he's up there nice and impassive and playing his stuff and, you know, he's got one guitar on a stand so he can switch to that and another one around his neck and then he's got six more behind him and he's going from guitar to guitar and 12 string guitar and and some sort of bazooki or whatever it is at different things, you know, with, that would be and you and I right at the beginning. Yeah. Extraordinary skills in that band. And Rick Wakeman was a virtuoso, but he didn't like the way it was going. And I, I found an interesting tidbit on Wikipedia talking about Tales from Topographic Oceans. Hold on, let me find. So Wakeman got bored, and during the tour, he told the band that he was going to leave because he just didn't want to play the whole four sides of this album that he didn't like. He wasn't involved a lot in the composition. It was Anderson and Howe that did most of it. And so at one point during a show in Manchester, he had his keyboard technician bring him a curry, which he proceeded to eat on stage. He was nasty. One of the first articles I ever wrote about Yes was in Rolling Stone. I think I've mentioned this before. And they, he was sort of the feature because he wasn't like any of the other guys in the band. He was out looking for a beer and a place to party in between shows. And these guys were all vegans and they're all into their new age stuff. And you know, this is a guy who started out playing rock and roll. But a guy who's classically trained as well. Yes. And so that's why he worked out so well. But you're right. He was frustrated because think about it. On If it's the Yes album, he didn't contribute anything to it. And yet he had to play those songs over and over again. And probably, you know, and he's got his own stuff he wants to do. Well, the thing is, a lot of the stuff, sometimes there's a break for the keyboard to come in with a nice synthy sound. But take it away. And that power trio is all you need for most of their stuff. Close to the Edge is different. When you get to the quiet part, there's a bunch of keyboard stuff. But like one of the great solos of rock and roll is at the end of Starship Trooper, that three-chord thing that just goes on and on for like five minutes. You don't need keyboards there. In some ways, I wish they had a second guitar, a rhythm guitar. In, the, in that particular piece, and, uh, and I've always loved Worm, that thing that goes around and around and around, it never resolves. Well, it yeah. does resolve, but it doesn't really resolve. But the, it's actually the organ that keeps it from collapsing on itself because otherwise it's just a bar and a bar and two bars that resolve but the organ is changing the chord voicings at at different times when you least expect it so it it, it makes it mm. seem like the last chord is the first chord it, not really yeah but it, it gives you the yeah. sensation of that worminess of you know is that now i gotta ask you about starship trooper because that's the name of a robert heinlein novel yeah um is this a science yep. fiction song because quite frankly i don't listen to the words from yes because i cannot <laughs> figure them out so i gave up a long time ago <laughs> and ever trying to decipher what they were talking about I, I was actually thinking about that because 
There are a couple of lines I can remember and sing along here and there, but it's not like Jethro Tull when we talked about Thick as a Brick. I, I know most of the words to the album, Grateful Dead songs I know by heart. Sure. It's something about Yes lyrics that they're too, that they're not very grounded. They're not love songs. They're not poems. I mean, there might be poems, but I don't really feel the lyrics in any way. And then, of course, there's the lame song, like, Don't Kill the Whales. And, you know, that's a okay. kind of political message, but it's not... It's not the kind of lyrics you'd expect in a rock song, essentially. Well, the, the, the lyrics that I always hear, them, they always sound like they're jumbled on purpose, and it's a bunch of nonsense, It's um, which I guess is kind of British-y, you know. Um, but he he changes words around, changes uh, parts of speech around, and I just could not grasp what he was, first of all, understand what he was saying exactly. But then trying to make sense of it was very difficult. And he didn't write, John Anderson didn't write all the words. Steve Howe wrote words, too. So I'm looking up the lyrics for Starship Trooper. Sister Bluebird, flying high above, shine your wings forward to the sun, hide the mysteries of life on your way. Though you've seen them, please don't say a word. It's like, where are we? What? Yeah. What? What? <laughs> Fool on the hill? What? <laughs> so according to Wikipedia, Anderson was aware of the title of Starship Trooper as a novel, and then he got the idea of a Starship Trooper being another guardian angel and Mother Earth. Okay. Okay, yeah. Johnny. Yeah. Sing it for us, Johnny. Mother of life, hold firmly onto me. Spread my knowledge higher than the day. Release as much as only you can sow. It just sounds like, you know, I... You, I, I, you want songs about love and cowboys and beer and, you Cowboys know, and beer would be good, Even sure. politics, you know, think of The Clash. They have great about lyrics. About me medieval knights. They could have written about medieval knights having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Drinking no, and I, singing ZZ Top song. <laughs> it's true that the lyrics are among the least important stuff in yes I, I would agree with that i think it's more the melodies the melodies are terrific over those chord changes sure one of the things that i, I like to imagine is that well first of all with this album the yes album the uh record company atlantic told them if they didn't come up with a hit they were done so it was three strikes and you're out as far as they were concerned so they hold up in a farmhouse somewhere and come up with this album the yes album i can't help but think that the pressure was on and they said we got to think of something here so they went in this prog a prog a more of a progressive direction. But I think they took their ability of arranging to say, let's come up with some cool riffs and arrange them ourselves. When I went back and looked at some of the reviews of this album when it first came out, the first thing that virtually everybody said was, this is quite a change for Yes, because normally they do covers. Yeah. And I'm like, what? 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 This is the most dramatic thing about the album? But I think that's one of the most interesting things about it, is that it sounds like they took a bunch of riffs and arrange them together, and like I said earlier, they're in stone. Yeah. And I was always surprised that there was not a lot of improvisation with this stuff. Why didn't they just... There's plenty of opportunities for some really great, expansive, live versions of these songs, especially where, you know, you, Howe has opportunities and the keyboard player has opportunities. I think, as you said, that what they're known for is just play the record yeah. really loud. You know, it's like a Steely Dan concert. Just do the album. So that brings me to something I wanted to mention. The, the Yes Songs album was... So there was a Yes Songs movie and a Yes Songs album, and the album didn't have the same tracks and the same recordings as the movie. The movie was short. It was like 75 minutes long, and the album's like two hours and 10, so it was on three sides. It was a triple album. So they recorded this in 1972. They recorded a total of seven shows that were released in a live set a few years ago called Progeny. And I remember seeing on some forums, all the Yes fans were talking about this, like, wow, seven different shows. 
And then it's like, yeah, but the banter between the songs is different each time. I mean, if all you've got is banter, you could listen to any one of those shows and they sound pretty much exactly the same. So as you say, no improvisation. Whereas Starship Trooper, you know, imagine Jerry Garcia playing in that bit at the end. That could go on for an hour. It is a shame, but... Pink Floyd wasn't much of an improvising band. Jethro told none of the ELP. None of these bands were real improvisers. They they had the skills of of writing melodies and arranging them and performing them, but they didn't have that. The band didn't begin as an improvisational band, and, right. and that I think is the difference with maybe not all of prog rock, but uh, you know, jam bands are jam bands, and the others are the others, and and there's no. There's no combination. There, there's rarely a combination of the two. Just to further confirm my thesis that those three albums are really all that matters, I found an article on ultimateclassicrock.com. Oh, it's got to be the ultimate. Though. All 183 Yes songs ranked worst to best. Now, I hate these things because you've got to scroll to the bottom. I'd rather see best to worst. So number one, what do you, what do you think is number one? The number one song? Best Ra- Yes song. Roundabout? No. No. Close to the Edge. Oh, all right. All right. So let me just read off the first 10. Close to the Edge, number one. Number two, And You and I from Close to the Edge. Number three, I've Seen All Good People from the Yes album. Number four, Heart of the Sunrise from Fragile. Number five, Roundabout from Fragile. Number six, and here's the the odd one out, Awaken from the 1977 album, Going for the One. Number seven, Starship Trooper. Number eight, Siberian Cat True. Number nine, The Gates of Delirium. That's from Relayer, the long track on Relayer. Number 10, Owner of a Lonely Heart, which you mentioned before. Well, I guess my opinion of yes is different from the people who write these lists because they're definitely uh, leaning towards that heavy, classical-sounding, big, epic pieces, whereas I'm thinking, I think Roundabout's a great song. I mean, I think that's a nice, compact, uh, you know. It could be a good pop song, except it's, what, eight minutes long in in the studio version, and so there was a a radio edit, of course. I didn't know what a Roundabout was back then. (laughs) Oh, really? I just thought it was another one of these weird things. I mean, they got one song named Siberian Cat True. I never knew what that meant. I knew what a roundabout was, but when he said, I'll be your roundabout, I'm like, what the heck does that? See? See what I'm getting to? See? (laughs) If it doesn't click in three seconds, I'm off. So, uh, but it's a great song. And I liked it because of the bass. You know, I played bass, so I really admired how Chris Squire really, you know... So I found an interview with John Anderson, and this was on 50 years, this was 50 years after the Yes album, it was very recent, early this year, because the Yes album came out. We could have actually, if we'd planned this better, we could have gotten this episode for the 50th anniversary on February 19th. Wow, was that close? This is the first time we've been talking about an album that was, that has a round number. So anyway, the question from the journalist is, this marks the 50th anniversary of the Yes album, which a lot of people consider the first great Yes album. And Anderson says, that's because it was the first album where we actually rehearsed all the songs, went on tour to play them, and then recorded them. We'd flushed out all the unnecessary stuff and become part of the music. And that's interesting. He said, we did a three-week period in a farmhouse in Devon. We rented a farmhouse, rehearsed like crazy until we went on the road and performed. That was something about going on tour, knowing what you're going to play virtually the same every night which wasn't that great. So it marked, what's interesting is it's not the first progressive rock album, but it might have been the one that really broke through the most. It's the one that I think of as the first progressive rock album. Now, 
other better albums by other people came later, like Dark Side of the Moon or whatever. At least in my life, it came into my life later. Your move was a, was a single on the radio, and I remember hearing that on my transistor radio along with Sly and the Family Stone and whoever else was having hits at the time. And I remember thinking, this is an unusual song, a song about a chess game. <laughs> <laughs> where he's talking about his relationship with the other person via the chess. So I thought, oh, that's a really interesting, that's the first time I ever heard of them. And then when, the, when I heard the longer versions of the songs on progressive radio, on, on college radio, I really thought it was pretty cool. And that's when other friends of mine and I started hooking into them because we heard them on, on college radio. But I was really surprised that they had to do edits. That was yeah. always very surprising yeah. to me. Yeah, it, that's interesting that they were... Because FM radio was new at the time, they were writing music that was made for FM radio for an FM radio that really didn't exist. You've got to wonder if that's what they were thinking. I mean, look at the two short songs on this album. They'd never get radio airplay. No. They're just not. There's no hook. There's no, there's no dance. There's no sing. You can't dance to it. You can't chew bubblegum to it. But the other songs are far more interesting and are deserving of radio play, but not on conventional radio stations. I don't know. Were they thinking of getting... Radio airplay on the BBC as well, that kind of thing? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm no, not it's... sure that they would go for like nine or 12-minute tracks like that. Yeah. But, but if you look at what was done before that, so in the Court of the Crimson King, 1969, arguably one of the foundational prog rock records, but King Crimson I don't think was that well known. I'm looking at a list. How about the Night? I was thinking of the Nice or ELP or any yeah, in, so, bands like that. So Soft Machine had some stuff in 69, the Nice Thoughts of Emerless Davjack in 67, but that wasn't quite the same prog rock. Aqualung is 1971, which is a 50 anniversary this year. Caravan and then ELP's Tarkus came out in 71. So 71 is really the period when things started flipping toward all of this. I wonder if the record companies were seeing the future of radio and saying, we need, you know, because Atlantic did say, we need, some, we need something from you guys, otherwise you're gone. And like, as you say, you point out Tarkus, great record. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, that's a lot of good stuff to come out in 1971. Uh, Aqualung. So yeah. the pressure must have been on in the, in the corridors of power, as it were, to, for Atlantic to get get their progressive rock band moving. And don't forget that Yes released two albums in 1971. The Yes album came out in February, and Fragile came out in November. And that's a very short period for two albums with a lot of meaty material. But we can assume that the, those three weeks in Devon were also working on things like Roundabout and Heart of the Sunrise, which are both on Fragile, South Side of the Sky, a lesser song, that there is, there is a continuity between them. In fact, there's a continuity between the music of that whole period that I mentioned, that, you know, those three, four albums, there's a stylistic continuity for a few years there. I think the stylistic continuity is actually a, it, they figured out a formula. They said, this is what we do. We have a fanfarish beginning, and then we have an exposition of what the song's about, then we go a little crazy, we do a couple of weird things, we bring a, maybe a second theme in, you know, so they have this this sort of a template for each of these longer songs. But the great thing is that they do give themselves time to let the songs develop. I think that's the unusual part. Not that they're just long, but they let the songs go where the the song wants to go. And yeah, I, I they think don't that's, hurry to keep under four minutes. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, they don't seem to have limitations like that. If you look at the long songs on the Yes album, Yours is No Disgrace, 9 Minutes 40, Starship Trooper 927, I've Seen All Good People 656, and Perpetual Change 851. Now, really, these these are long. Yeah. These are long, yeah. You know, getting on 10 minutes and not getting radio play. Yet, as you say, there was a Your Move radio edit. I think there was a radio edit of Starship Trooper. Starship Trooper. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah. I think those four songs are all excellent, and and it's unfortunate, like, Clap, which in early uh, pressings was called The Clap, whereas the actual name is Clap, is an an astounding song by Steve Howe. It's a live recording, because you hear John Anderson introduce Steve Howe. It doesn't really fit, except when it resolves at the end, it kind of resolves on the same note as Starship Trooper begins, and that's really interesting. I've always, I always, whenever I hear the end of it, I'm, ga- I'm getting ready for it. Um, the interesting thing about Clap is when I first heard it, I thought he was improvising. I thought he, this was a song where he just comes out and just does a bunch of licks that he's been working on and stuff like that. I had no idea that it was a set piece. Because again, I'm mystified why there isn't any improvisation in this band. It's, uh, it's weird. But that's a great song. I mean... Um, uh, the, 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 the homage to John Williams, to classical gas, he actually plays a couple of the chords, changes just once, but there's a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, just like in classical gas. So there's no question in my mind that he was influenced by that and, and influenced so much that he thought he could get away with a piece like this on a, on a rock album. Well, interestingly, you get... He's got a couple of songs like that. Mood for a Day is another acoustic song. Mood for a Day, right. And when they performed live, there was always a moment where Wakeman would get five or six or eight minutes to play some of his solo stuff as well. Now, John Anderson really didn't have much of a solo career. I remember his recording Elias of Sunhillow, which was all sort of Tolkien-esque, which was clever, but it wasn't groundbreaking. And I think Chris Squire had a solo album at some point, but he wasn't into that. And and you can't just have a bass solo in the middle of the uh, of a concert. Well, they did though. Didn't he have that song called The Fish? Yeah, but Yeah, but that's part of a song. That's that's yeah, the whole but, band. It's not him doing a solo thing like Wakeman I, or Howe. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he had a solo album and they did a song from it would occasionally do a song from it. I can't think of the name of it. He had two solo albums, Fish Out of Water in 75 and Chris Squire's Swiss Choir in 2007. It's a song from Fish Out of Water. It's a song from, because Fish Out of Water, get it? The fish, he's the fish, Fish it's Out of Water. It's not from Fish Out of fish Water. Is a bass no. song. No, I know, but the album name, Fish Out of Water, is based on the name of the song, The Fish, because he's the fish out of water. It's a solo album. Yeah, Okay. So I do have to relate the anecdote that I've told you probably a few times, that, that time when I saw Yes in 1978. Me being a guitarist and, and clap and mood for a day were things that I tried to work out. And seeing Steve Howe up there playing this and, you know, the thing's going around real slow and the lights are on and he's playing clap. And he pops the top E string and he just moves his hand up five frets and plays the rest of the song without missing a beat. I mean, that was just astounding to see that's, that. That's when you know a musician knows his instrument. <laughs> it's like... He sees yeah. the notes. Uh, uh, yeah, other musicians might put the instrument down and get another guitar and start over or something, but he just went right I, I think it. I might, if um, that happened. But start again from the beginning. Well, you played bass. How hard is it to play bass with three it's, strings it's instead not, of four? You're only playing one note at a time. It's not hard. In fact, you could just need one <laughs> string on a bass, really. <laughs> 
Well, both of us discussed last week the fact that there was a remix of this album by Steve Wilson, and I have not listened to it because I, I'm not really... There's something about saying, okay, well, we recorded this album at a time where we didn't have certain technologies and it may not sound as good as it could have, but that's part of the work, yeah, right? Yeah. It's like the cracks in a Rembrandt portrait are part of the work now. You can't take them out. You can't take uh, Edison's recording of Mary Had a Little Lamb and sweeten it up. It's just, it's not the same thing. I, I got a, uh, I bought the CD of uh, the S album recently. I don't know what version of it is. I think it's from 2005. It was put up by Expanded Remastered. And it comes with the single versions on it. It's not the Stephen Wilson, because I, too, yeah. wanted that original sound. Yeah. I wasn't going to go out of my way looking for the Steve Wilson version. And plus, I've played all these songs on the radio. I mean, yeah. I know these songs inside and out. I know all the little... You know, I mean, I don't know how many times I would sit there with my headphones on going... You know, just doing the basso continuum. So um, I, I, re I really love this record. This is the only Yes album I think I would own a CD of, like, except for Yes songs, which yeah. I own. I think we talked about this before. The reason we bought Yes songs was because it was more music for your buck. Like you bought yeah. one album and you pretty much had the album versions, except there was crowd noise. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the recording quality isn't great on Yes songs, and the filming quality of the movie is even less so. But Yes songs was one of those midnight movies that I must have seen a dozen times in the late 70s. It would it'd be a double feature with something like Reefer Madness before. Right. It's all, it was there all the time. Saw it all the time. It's no longer... I look to see if it's available, and it's really hard to find the actual movie. You can see it on YouTube, but on disc, it didn't look like it's available. I kind of wonder if they've disavowed the movie. They, they really can't go back and clean it up that much. Well, I wonder how much... Um, if they own the rights to it. That's possible. It could be one of those weird things. But but it was strange at the time that the movie and the triple album had the same name, but different, because some of the songs were different versions in the two. The Yes Songs movie was, was filmed in one show. I can tell you, this troubles you. It troubles you that the album and the movie are different. No, it's just... Because the, the album isn't billed as a, as a soundtrack. No, it's not, but it has the same name, so in the same artwork, so you would expect it to be the same. Does it have the same artwork? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Again, just looking at the track list on Yes Songs, of the 13 songs on it, one of them is the excerpt from the Firebird Suite. One of them is the excerpt from Six Wives of Henry VIII by Rick Wakeman. Every other song is a core Yes song. There's not one bit of fat on that thing. And this was, remember, this was 1972, that they had pretty much established the canon. Yep, that's it. I mean, there it is. Uh, and it's, now I wonder if, the canon became the canon because of Yes songs and the movie, or because there's everything after the uh, everything after this. I didn't pay much attention to until they started having radio hits again in the uh, what late eighties with the nine oh two oh five one oh oh oh. God, that was terrible stuff. Yeah. Well, Owner of a Lonely Heart was pretty cool. I mean, for a Man. for an MTV pop hit for Yes, yeah. you know. I mean, and. No one wanted to hear prog rock in the early 80s. I'm sorry. True. Well, here's something interesting uh, to see how from 1971 to 1973, right, to see the difference that Yes went from a sort of, you know, band to like the biggest thing. The Yes Songs album was gold in March 1974. It's about a year later. It sold more than a million copies by the 90s. It was huge. Even more surprising is that Tales from Topographic Ocean. So... 
1973, with Yes songs, Yes is at their peak. They're so popular that when Tales from Topographic Oceans came out later that year, it went gold for pre-orders it, by selling 500,000 copies. Wow. Before it was even released, it went gold because everyone was so ecstatic about a new Yes album. Yeah. Um, and, of course, then they listened to it. And, well, and then they were unhappy. You know, I think I need to go back and listen to that. I remember at the time that, that there was one side, the first and the fourth sides were okay, and it was like, it, it's, but this is like the bombast that came in and it killed prog rock. This is the For some sign. reason, when, when you say Tales of Topographical Oceans, there's just a thing that put, that's, that's in my head that says, eh, why bother? Yeah. Because it's just, uh, and I remember at the time, uh, sort of, that well, this is the, a new big Yes album, but I don't remember anything from it. No. I remember seeing a lot of ads for it, things like well, that. Well, I had the album. I, I bought it. I bought Yes albums until around 77, after that I stopped. I had the first two back in the day. Again, totally different. But I think what it was is Close to the Edge worked really well because the, the different parts were... Hey, Close to the Edge starts out as a raucous rock song. After you get the bird song and the wind, you get this kind of uh, attack of the guitar that comes swooping in, and then you get the calm parts later and all that. But it's a powerful beginning. I seem to recall that the Tales from Topographic Oceans are more trying to do too much, you know, sidewalk, four sidewalk pieces. Yeah. Again, I think it's the record company saying, okay, more, more sausage. Well, I almost wonder if the record company was skeptical about it. I mean, they weren't when they saw the Who was in the band then? Who was in the band? Well, that was still the, the core five members, Anderson, House, Squire, Wakeman, and White. Remember I said earlier, Wakeman announced that he was leaving the band during the tour right. for Topographic Oceans. Right. Because he got bored and ate curry. Oh, right. Um, and, uh, and Bruford by then was gone. Bruford left in 72. So some of the stuff on Yes Songs has Bruford, I think two or three songs. But the rest has Alan White. Alan White's an extraordinary drummer. He really is. Oh, yeah. And Bruford was, too. Oh, yeah. They're both excellent drummers. Um, yeah. But, all right. Well, that's it about yes, no, maybe, sort of. Yeah. But first, I want to mention, I want to thank our Patreon patrons who are helping us float the boat here. You know, I used to be in commercial radio, and there's nothing I like better than ads. But not in my podcast, please. It's way more fun to produce this show without having to think about the overhead. And that's why our patrons get a heap of thanks. Your patronage can be helpful, too. You can set up a regular monthly Patreon donation for the next track at patreon.com slash the next track. Now you may, if you would, if you will. Okay, I'm going to mention a YouTube, particularly, I'm going to mention a YouTube recording, but also a YouTube channel, and I kind of regret that I haven't mentioned it up until now. Wigmore Hall in London is a very small concert venue, and they've been filming and streaming for free a number of concerts since... I guess they started in June last year. Some of the first lockdown concerts of classical music were like single musicians or Ian Bostridge singing with a, a piano accompanying him. Wasn't Stephen Huff like the first performance there? I think Stephen Huff was yeah. the first, yeah. So I'll link to the episodes with some of the classical musicians we talked to last year, Stephen Huff, and Bostridge. They have a new one that was uh, streamed on April 2nd. It's Johann Sebastiani's St. Matthew Passion. This is not Johann Sebastian Bach, whose Matthew Passion is well known, but Johann Sebastiani, 
an Italian. He lived from 1622 to 1683, so predates Bach by a bit. What's really fascinating is that this is the ensemble fretwork, which is a group of musicians who play viola de gamba, along with five singers and two violins and an organ. So it's a very, very, very small, what, um, seven musicians and five singers. It's a very small-scale thing. But I've mentioned many times how much I love the sound of viola de gamba, and when you get four of them together, they have this like warm and fuzzy resonance that comes between the instruments. And unlike your standard Baroque passion or cantata or whatever, where you may have trumpets and, and even some drums and things, you know, making it loud, this is a very restrained piece. So I'll link to this on YouTube. And by all means, check out Wigmore Hall's channel. They've just got dozens of great concerts. I'm going to be listening to 10 Years After Recorded Live. That's the name of the album. It's a live album, obviously. I got this when it first came out because I was a big 10 Years After fan. And uh, it's not because I liked their hit single, which I do not care for at all. I liked them because they're a blues boogie rock band, and I like that kind of stuff. The thing I like about this record is it's a very well-recorded live album. It was recorded with uh, the Rolling Stones mobile unit, which at the time was state-of-the-art. So that alone was prestigious. And I can tell you that this is this is the first album I discovered sensory deprivation. If I turned the lights off at night while I was listening to this record, it really did feel like I was in the audience. It's, it's very well uh, mixed and very well produced, which leads me to my second favorite thing about this live album is that it's 10 years after without all the studio crap they used to throw onto these songs to make them sound, I don't know, a little more modern, a little more poppy, when essentially, as I said, they're a blues boogie band. Uh, their record company, Derham, was very interested in making sure that their studio albums had more of a pop flair. But here on this live album, it's just the four guys, bass, drums, organ, and Alvin Lee. And they they do a fantastic job playing as a blues quartet. None of the uh none of the fancy stuff that uh, that shows up on a lot of their studio albums and none of the 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 pop songs that show up on their uh their albums either. They do not do a live version of I'd Love to Change the World. But they do perform for two and a half hours on this, the original two disc LP that I had as a teenager, it only had about an hour and a half's worth of music, but when they extended it for a CD and streaming, they added another hour or so. It's all quite good. Alvin Lee, I think, is, is a great guitarist, and uh, he really gets to show off his stuff here, as well as everybody else in the band. Chick Churchill and Leo Lyons uh, do a great job in the rhythm section. So there you go. You like the blues, you like the rock, you like the boogie. You might like this. Ten years after, recorded live, is my next track. This was episode number 207 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.